Well, good morning. Let me invite you to remain standing, uh, though you can make your way back towards your seats. We are continuing our series uh, during Easter or Eastertide in the book of Luke, where we're looking at passages that speak to the foundational reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus references his death and resurrection by way of the Old Testament prophet Jonah. Now, as I read, I want you to pay attention to the form of the passage. This is like a courtroom drama. Jesus talks evidence and witnesses in the hopes that we might come to believe for the first time, or maybe deeper for the hundredth time. Let's turn our attention now to God's Word as it comes to us in the book of Luke, chapter 11. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, "'This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah.'" For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here." This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to Him in prayer. Father in heaven, pray that You would teach us, teach us something from Your Word. Not just teach us something, teach us Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask that You would help us to hear, help me to speak, and help us to respond in faith, a deeper faith, in the death and resurrection of the Son of God for me. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, for a while, the only story that Graham would consent to listen to in the Jesus Storybook Bible was the David and Goliath story. I get it. It's a pretty cool story. You know, David refuses the armor. He goes to the stream. He finds the five smooth stones. And that big giant, if you remember the words, thud, 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 comes walking up to him. And there's the confrontation David kills Goliath with the stone. Now, I hope, and I hoped at that time that Graham would get a sense of the bigger picture that great David's greater son was the real David who was coming to destroy sin and death and the devil. But I knew I probably would need to read to him the actual story of Jesus. So we went through a time of bartering for a while. Okay, Graham. I'll read this story for you if you at least let me read a story about Jesus too. Maybe some of, you, some of you have been there with your kids. But recently, thankfully, Graham has expanded his repertoire of allowable Jesus storybook stories. So I'm really glad for that. He actually really likes the story of Jonah now, the story of Jonah. And I'm thankful for that for really two reasons. One is it's going to be what we're doing in VBS this year. So that's exciting. The second reason I'm excited about it is that if this passage is to to be believed, which it should be, then Jesus said there's only one story you really need. You just need the story of the book of Jonah. That's enough. That's enough for you to believe everything that I want you to believe. As Jonah 2.9 says beautifully, salvation is of the Lord. If all the Ninevites needed was Jonah's preaching, then these Pharisees, and certainly we ourselves, have everything we need to come to faith in the Son of Man. 
That's really the question that this passage is asking. Do we have everything we need to come to faith in Jesus? If there's anything we should know about ourselves, we love an excuse, don't we? We love excuses. Anything that'll get me off the hook, I'll take it. Oh, I didn't hear you when you said that. Yeah, you know, I was really tired yesterday. That's why I didn't get around to it. Well, you should have seen the way she was acting. You know, I don't check my phone very often. It's really not that big of a deal. That person should just get over it. I was just only joking. I don't think I need to go on, right? We have a deep desire to justify ourselves, to self-justify. And that should be kind of like a spiritual billboard for our souls, shouldn't it? If all I'm doing is just is dodging responsibility in my life, then I will never find a solid foundation. In the court case that we just read, Jesus aims to convince us that our excuses really are no good. And through the coming sign of His death and resurrection, salvation truly is found in Him. We're just going to walk through this passage today in sequence. We're just kind of going to look at the court case as it is laid out to us. First, we'll look at how we demand signs from God. Second, we're going to look at the one sign that we actually need, the sign of Jonah. Finally, we're going to look and see the witnesses that Jesus calls to help convince us of the truth of who He is. At the end of this passage, no one says anything. And so then we're kind of just left with a verdict that we have to ourselves return. How will we respond to this court case? Let's just jump right in. First, let's look at the signs we demand. The episode, the episode begins in verse 29 as the crowds are increasing. And apparently Jesus didn't take any church growth classes in seminary because even as they're starting to swell, he decides to say something really hard to them. He's ready to challenge us. Look again, verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. That's a great way to build a church. Hello, all you evil people. Glad you're here. Now, we need to unpack this claim a little bit, don't we? In John's gospel, John catalogs a number of signs for us. This is the first of his signs. This is the second of his signs. In Luke's gospel, we've seen a number of signs up to this point, and we know those signs, don't we? Changing water into wine and feeding 5,000 and healing blind people and making mute people speak, right? So what does Jesus mean when He says He's not going to give us any signs? He's been giving them His entire ministry. There's a key insight for us that helps us to understand what he means if we look at the previous episode. I'm sorry it's not printed for you, but in Luke 11:14, Jesus casts a demon out of a mute man. And those watching write it off completely. They've got two reasons for writing it off. One group says that the only reason he can cast out demons is by the power of the demonic. So they brush it aside. The second group group pushes it off by saying this in 11:16, testing him, they kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. It's like it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. This actually helps explain what's happening in verse 29. It's not that the people didn't see any signs. 
They saw tons of signs. They saw plenty. Acts 2, 22, Peter is preaching, and he says this to the Jewish people, "'Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know.'" Even more amazing, it's not just attested that the Jewish people saw signs in the Bible, it's actually written in the Talmud. Now, for those of you who don't know the Talmud, that is a collection of Jewish writings compiled between the 2nd and the 5th century, and they hold pervasive power over the Jews up to the modern day. One says this. This is one of the sayings. Jesus practiced magic and led Israel astray. Another Talmudic saying says this. On the day before the Passover, they hanged Jesus. A herald went before him proclaiming, he practiced magic and enticed Israel to go astray. You see, even his strongest opponents recognized that he did signs and wonders, what they're calling magic, and yet many still don't believe. For some reason, the signs that Jesus performed were just not heavenly enough. They just weren't good enough. I think we see through the excuse now, don't we? We see right through it. It's just an excuse. For some, no matter how clear the evidence, we will never have enough of it. I think we all know that there's a way of asking questions that obscures the truth, right? And it begs the question, how are you seeking Jesus? Are you seeking to know or seeking to obscure? Do you want to find or do you want to self-justify? I'm convinced that we're sign-seeking people, maybe not so much Jesus-seeking people. Why don't you just fill in the blank in your hearts? I would believe in God if. I would believe in God if. Sometimes we're looking for scientific signs, right? Look, we might say, if you could scientifically prove God's existence, then I would believe in Him. Now, I would contend that there are powerful clues in the natural world, coded information called DNA, the anthropic principle, an expanding universe that points to a beginning. But natural science is never going to give us a smoking gun for a supernatural God. Hello, Siri. <laughs> a sign. <laughs> Others of us might be looking for a political sign. For all of human history, the power of the gods was based on their victories. For the proof and existence of Marduk and Ra and Thor, you would ask how well the Babylonians and the Vikings and the Egyptians did in battle. And before we think that's not my problem, that's not our problem here, we might want to pause and reflect on how closely aligned phrases like divine providence, manifest destiny, God and country are in the American psyche. I'll believe this Christianity stuff, we might say, as long as it's a cultural and political winner. Americans like to back winners. But mostly we're just looking for something miraculous, aren't we? I'll trust Jesus if He cures my family member's disease. 
if this prayer affects my lottery ticket, if I get the job I want, I'll believe in God if He consents to be my spiritual vending machine. Now, in this room, there's really not a binary of people. It's not like there's one group who's totally convinced and another group is totally unconvinced. That's not really how it works. It's more like a spectrum of people, right? It includes doubting believers and open skeptics. That's probably where we are. So let me just offer a word of encouragement. This is for everyone, the convinced and the unconvinced. Wherever you are along that spectrum, our posture of communication with God should not be, God, submit your resume to me for evaluation. Rather, it should be, God, help me to submit my heart to you for salvation. I'm convinced that if we're all the ways the ones that are evaluating God, we're going to miss Him. That's why Jesus says no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah to this evil generation. If you're seeking to put God to the test, you will not find Him. But Jesus only challenges us because He loves us, right? He ruffles our feathers because He actually wants us to bring us into His mercy and grace. That's always how it works. In the context of these verses, again in Luke chapter 11, just before this, Jesus says this, for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Because there is one sign that is given that if we receive, we will find. That's the second point. Jesus gives us the one sign we actually need. Look at the future tense in verse 29. The sign we need that will be given, will be given. Notice also in verse 30, as Jonah became a sign, so will the Son of Man be. He'll be the sign. This is what Jesus is saying. The real sign is a person, the Son of Man, who will be like Jonah. Now, just in case we've mixed up our Jonahs and Jothams and Jonathans and Judahs, Jonah was that prophet who didn't want to go to Nineveh to preach repentance, and so instead he jumped on a boat and tried to get as far away as possible from Nineveh. And God, of course, was there, and he found him, and he caused a great storm to come, and Jonah recognized that it was his fault, and so he told the sailors, the only way that this storm is going to go away is if you throw me overboard, and so they throw him overboard reluctantly, and then the storm stops. He's swallowed by a great fish, a dog gadol in Hebrew. You didn't need that, but it's just a fun one. That fish saves him from certain death and then three days later spits him off, spits him out onto dry land. Now, in Matthew's gospel, which is printed in the reflection uh, of your bulletin, the first page, Matthew decides to spell it out more clearly for us than Luke. He connects Jesus' gospel and Jonah's story. This is what he says, "'For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth.'" That's what it's saying. Here's the only sign that you will ever need. Jesus will become like the sign of Jonah. So, what Michael Wilcox says, Jonah experienced a kind of death, a kind of burial, and a kind of resurrection, and he went to Nineveh with only an embryonic, embryonic version of the good news. Good, but limited. But in Jesus, something greater is happening. The Holy Spirit has broken into the world in power, and by means of a real death, a real burial, and a real resurrection, He is able to offer the world 
real salvation at the deepest possible level. That which the story of Jonah illustrated and foreshadowed is made actual in the person of Jesus. So this past week, Haley and I hosted a newcomer's dessert at our house, which, by the way, we will have another one kind of towards the end of the summer, probably at Pastor Paul Hahn's house. And if you're new and haven't been, it's a real blessing. It's fun to go to those. And at this newcomer's dessert, somebody asked a great question. Do I have to believe everything that Redeemer believes in order to become a member? And what's even greater about that question is the answer that I get to give. No. No, you don't. You don't have to believe everything that we believe. Well-meaning Christians can disagree about a ton of things. There's only one thing. There's one thing. There's one sign that we are called to believe, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who is our Savior. There's one thing. Of course, there's tons of implications and applications and other things because of that, but there is a reason that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following this, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel. It's the core of our preaching. It's the reason we're here. It's the means of our salvation. That's the only hope. Everything else is just kind of gravy, baby. There's also only one way to receive it, faith. Knowing the gospel, assenting to the gospel, trusting your life to Christ is how we come to know God. And I truly believe that faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus is eminently reasonable. It truly is reasonable. It's very reasonable. It's the last puzzle piece that makes sense of the whole picture. You wouldn't know what it was about. And then the death and resurrection of Jesus comes in the middle, and you're like, I see it. I see it. I see what this world is about now. It's like watching the final revelation of a story. Like, you can't figure out what's going to happen at the end of Hamlet. You just have to watch it. But then when you see it, it makes sense of everything that came before. The death and resurrection of Jesus makes sense of everything else, everything that came before and everything that's coming after. It's not a math formula that we can solve. It's a reality that we're called to live in. And herein lies the reason that many reject the signs of God. Not because they're not good signs. They are very good signs. But because they bring us into moral confrontation with the sign giver. They bring us into moral confrontation with the signifier. To receive any of Jesus' signs is to come face to face with God Himself. In the presence of God, our self-justification just doesn't work anymore, does it? Us saying, no, trust me, I was innocent, is not going to fly. All we can say is that it should have been me who died for my sins. It should have been me that was buried in the earth. But thanks be to God, because of the resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't me. It was Jesus who died for me. It was Jesus who buried in the earth. And because He lives, I'll live. In the depth of their souls, the Pharisees knew. They knew. I can't accept Jesus' signs because it means that I will have to come face to face with my God. And in the core of our being, we know it too. 
This is why Jesus calls two witnesses. That's our last point. He's calling two witnesses to bring us into a holy confrontation with Him. He calls the Queen of the South and the Ninevites. The Queen of the South also called the Queen of Sheba. Verse 31, the Queen of the South will rise up in judgment. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise in judgment. Again, in His mercy, Jesus brings us into the moral confrontation that we actually need in life if we really deep down know that He's given us enough to believe, then we need this conflict. We need these witnesses against us that will drive us to repentance. These last two witnesses will rise in the judgment on the last day, on the resurrection, because they only saw a shadow of Jesus and believed. They saw a sign from afar and still believed. It's kind of a sobering thought for us, isn't it? We've been talking about the glories of the resurrection in this whole series, and we should be. I am excited for the resurrection. I'm excited for the day when Jesus comes and the trumpet will sound, right, as we sang, and all will be made new, and this old body of mine will rise, and it will be renewed, and there will be no more sin or sadness or tears or death or suffering anymore. But there's something else that we kind of don't want to talk about when Jesus returns. There's also going to be a judgment that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. We don't like that one. We'll have to give an account to the Lord about how we received or did not receive the sign of His death and resurrection. Some people today will tell us, you know, fear isn't a really good motivator. We shouldn't talk about God's judgment. We should talk about His grace and mercy, and absolutely His grace and mercy is the driving force of everything that Jesus says. Absolutely. That's the driving force of it. He threatens us with judgment to remind us that His grace is better. But we have to recognize that Jesus talks about judgment sometimes. We can't shy away from that. In my role, I hear a decent number of testimonies, and there's a testimony thread that comes up a lot. Someone says this, When I was a kid, I read the Left Behind series. It happens a lot. And I was scared. I was scared. I was fearful of the coming judgment. Now, there's a lot in those books that are not good theology. We can sit down and talk about it later. But it's true. There is a motivator out there. I do not want to stand before the living God and say, oh, I just never heard. My sin wasn't that bad. No, I need to stand before the living God and say, no, your sign was enough, and I received Jesus. But it's also not the last motivator. Fear is a holy motivator. It's not the last or the most important one. It's not. Think about the Ninevites for a moment. If you know anything about Nineveh, it was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire, seriously, if you ever read anything about them, it is the worst world empire in terms of its ruthlessness that you will ever read about. I cannot repeat some of the things they did to their enemies. They invented ways of torture that you could not imagine. They were ruthless, bloodthirsty, terrible. They were terrible. You understand why Jonah was like, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. You get it. But Jesus references their salvation for an important reminder. Yes, there is a judgment. But there is no sin or evil that you can commit that God's mercy cannot cover. If these guys can be forgiven, I promise you can. That's a good motivator. 
When God confronts us in judgment, He confronts us so that we can know His mercy. That's the reason He does it. Finally, think about the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba. She came either from Ethiopia or present-day Yemen, not totally sure, to hear the wisdom of Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And after visiting for a while, she says this in 1 Kings 10, 7-9, "'The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom.'" But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants. Blessed be the Lord God who has delighted in you. The Queen of the South found the words of God in the echo of Solomon's wisdom, right? How much more will she know God when she hears the words of Jesus Himself? I was on a Zoom call a couple of weeks ago, and it was with a seminary professor and a couple of other people. And before we recorded the call, you know, you do that thing on the Zoom call where you just kind of chat. And uh, it turns out that this seminary professor who teaches the Bible for a living loves Taylor Swift, loves her, starts talking about every, like all the songs, knows all of the people that Taylor Swift is writing about in her songs, okay? He's just entranced. It's kind of, it was really interesting. It's funny. And then all of a sudden, somebody else holds a cell phone up to the camera on her, uh, on, on, in, in her computer, and it's a picture, kind of a grainy picture of Taylor Swift. And then she starts scrolling through. These are all pictures of Taylor in high school. She goes, I went to high school with Taylor Swift. I know the people that you're talking about. Like, I know, I have to look it up, Drew and Abigail and Adam from high school. The professor's mind was just like, you know? Like, he was like going crazy. This is the image of the Queen of Sheba. She heard of the wisdom of God as if from an echo like that professor. She's, she's heard of it. She, she can kind of taste it. She's close. She's almost there. And she still believes. She spent her entire life thinking about it and pondering about it and still coming to faith. How much more then will she be blown away when she comes face to face with the source of those words, the source of those echoes? How much more should we then? How much more did we, should we then respond in faith when we read the very words of Jesus, our Savior, distributed the world over in the printing press and the internet in this book here. The passage concludes without an ending. How will we we respond to the sign of Jonah, the person of Jesus? Is the sign enough for us to believe? I think it's probably best to end with the ending of the Jesus storybook Bible passage on Jonah. This is what it says many years later. God was going to send another messenger with the same wonderful message. Like Jonah, he would spend three days in utter darkness, but this messenger would be God's own son. He would be called the Word because he himself would be God's message, God's message translated into our own language, everything God wanted to say to the whole world in a person. Will you receive the message? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this sign given to us, the only side that we need, a sign that comes to every generation that Jesus died in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Salvation, as Jonah says, belongs to the Lord. 
Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.